So it is uh, my privilege to introduce to you our speaker for this weekend. That's uh, my friend, Tier Webster. Uh, Tier is a pastor and he is a licensed counselor. He is the executive director of Damascus Way Ministries, just throughout the state of Minnesota. And we have here in town, um, Damascus Way helps people who are transitioning from prison back into their communities to provide stable housing, provides employment opportunities, provides career training, all of that happens within the context of Christian discipleship. It's a Christ-centered ministry. Christ Community Church has partnered with Damascus Way, and I'm really grateful for that partnership. It's financial and it's relational, and we're partnered with them because the work that they do is important. And if Christian people don't come alongside, then it just doesn't happen, and so I'm really grateful that we get to be in it with, with them at Damascus Way. So I got to meet Tier about two and a half years ago when I first moved to Rochester. Um, Tier's my friend. He's a pastor, he is a leader, he is a visionary, he is also kind, and he is humble, and he is patient, and he is available, and I have benefited greatly from my friendship with him, and I know that we all are gonna benefit from what he's gonna talk with us about this weekend. So would you guys please join me in welcoming my friend Tier Webster to our stage. Praise God, what a pleasure it is to be with you all on this side of the stage, if you will. God bless you, I want to thank you so much for your partnership and your contributions to Damascus Way. Over the last couple of years, I would say that together, we served over 200 men in this community and families through our partnership. So I can't thank you enough. Let's put our hands together for the work you all are doing. I'm convinced that you have an amazing pastor here. You have some amazing, some of the best folks here are at Christ Community. I tell you the truth, every time I have an opportunity to meet someone new or kind of share life with them, I'm always enriched and empowered. So you all are an amazing church and I'm grateful for that. Um, I want to, over the next few minutes or so, um, maybe bring some things to your attention that you've already known and then hopefully leave us with a challenge on how to address some of the scenarios that we're aware of. Did you all know that right now, there's about two million people that are incarcerated throughout the United States? Two million. Somewhere around 600,000 of those two million will go back to the communities that they're from, right? They'll re-enter their communities. And, and it's fascinating, somewhat depressing, that the data would say within the first three years-ish, a significant number of those folks will find themselves back incarcerated. Now, incarceration is one way that we maybe consequence people for making poor decisions. Sure. Um, Incarceration is a way that we say we rehabilitate folks, maybe. But humor me for a second and just try to visualize this scenario. Here is a 18, 19-year-old male that finds himself for the first time in his life in what one might call a box six by eight, eight by 10, 
often um, cement or concrete blocked room. If you're lucky, maybe there is a small window, thick plexiglass that has been scraped so very little light comes in there and you have to deal with the thoughts in your own mind. You're tormented. And just, 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 just humor me for a little bit and, and let's say uh, potentially um, that person doesn't need this for justice. Just, just say that. While in there, they lose all contact with family. While in there, they're revisiting their childhood. I'm careful because this is a mixed audience and, and I don't want to paint the picture too clear without um, violating someone's um, innocence. But many of these folks have been victims of what we call in the human service world adverse childhood experiences. There's been incest, there has been rape, there has been parents putting needles in kids' arm, injecting drugs. There has been neglect. There has been children fed through a closet. And so potentially, this 18, 19-year-old that we would call a monster is maybe a victim of their childhood experiences. And so they get incarcerated and they, and they get in this box and, and something goes wrong and they find themselves even more isolated in solitary confinement. Now, it wasn't until recent that folks could be in solitary confinement uh, literally for over a year, sometimes years. Uh, you get out to shower and, and maybe a little bit, uh, um, maybe for some hour at most, often not, fed through kind of this little door that they open, put your tray in, and uh, tormented. Dealing with self, feeling hopeless, isolated. No one cares. I'll never be able to turn this life around. And, and so my thought today is um, maybe we have an opportunity to support someone that's been paralyzed by life. And, and how I want to maybe challenge us, challenge us today, is by looking at a fella in the book of Mark who was indeed paralyzed. And we don't know what happened. We don't know his life story. All we know is that his situation was real messed up. So we're going to look at this. And I recognize that you've invited me to your house, and I got to accommodate the culture here, but I may every now and then get excited, and I'll need someone to get with me and say amen or something. Where I'm from, I'd say, so I know I'm in the building. I know that I'm saying something. So in this book of Mark, the second chapter, we're going to read through the story, and then I'm just going to go back and kind of work through some key points that will challenge us to think 
about uh, maybe a topic of um, I am my brother's keeper. And let's see, maybe we'll say I need you to survive. Just humor me and look at the person next to you and say, I need you to survive. I am my brother's keeper. Mark, the second chapter. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, even past the outside of the front door. And Jesus preached the word to them. And then some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since the crowd could not get him to Jesus uh, because the crowd was so um, massed, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat so that the man that was lying could get to Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Uh, I'm just wondering, is there anyone here that needs God to do something in your life in a way that you've never seen it done before? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, yes. I mean, there's things in my life that if it doesn't happen, it just, if God don't do it, it just won't happen. They got to experience this. In this book of Mark, I, I like Mark in comparison to what we call the other two synoptic gospels. I like Mark. He's not too worried about trying to prove that Jesus was the Christ, right? He doesn't work through the generations to try to prove that he's connected uh, to the lineage of David. Uh, he doesn't prove that he's eternal, right? He doesn't say, and John's not a synoptic gospel, but he doesn't say, in the beginning was the word, the word was with him. So he doesn't talk about his eternal composition, and he's not like Luke, so he's not super detailed. He just says, Jesus was, and here's what he did got it going on. And, and so what happens here in this second chapter of Mark, there's a fella that we don't know why he got to how he is, but he's paralyzed indeed. Jesus, after casting some devils out and, and healing a leopard, goes to a home. We believe it's Peter's home. He goes to a home, and then all of a sudden people must hear that Jesus is in the building, and so they rush to the home, and they kind of like make their way into the home, and there's no room to get to Jesus. 
they recognize that uh, when Jesus is in the building, supernatural things happen, miracles happen. And, and so they're sitting at his feet, they're listening, and, and there's no way even like to get into the door to kind of see what's going on there. And, and there's this fellow who's paralyzed, and we don't know why. It often fascinates me in the Bible when there's people with dismal conditions jacked up situations, if you will, and they don't call them by name, but they're known by their condition. Have you ever felt like that? Like, do you all see I'm a human being? Do you know, hello, Tier in the building, my name's Tier. Uh, my name's not, you know, the guy who messes up or the guy who's had a failed marriage or the guy who, you know, isn't the best this or that or the guy who's lost all of his investments. Like, I'm not that person. That's my condition. Here's a fella that's paralyzed and needs help. And then some of his buddies, if you will, some of his comrades, his partners, know Jesus is in the building. And they say, we have to get our partner to Jesus. Because we are, I am my brother's keeper. And no doubt the man's, yeah, like, I need you to survive. And so what they do is they pick this fellow up, the four men, and, and we believe that, right, so one person's on each corner, and they, and they pick him up, and, and then we believe that they walked him up the side of the house. The tradition would say that there's some stairs on the side of the house, and they get him to where the roof is flat, and it was either clay tile or, or it was uh, mud and some grass on the roof, and, and, and they're desperate, and they're gonna do whatever they need to do to get this man to Jesus because this man is broken and he needs help. They're not concerned about the mistakes he made. They're not concerned about how he got to where he is and, and kind of how, what cars were dealt to him. They're just concerned about their brother, and they recognize that if this guy's going to make it, we've got to get him to Jesus. There's some folks here that are on both sides of the paradigm, if you will. There's some folks here that, that have the ability, they have the asset. I don't just mean this but they have the wealth, the intellect, the social capital to help make change in people's lives. And then there's those of us that are like me that like, I need someone to help a brother out. Holler if you hear me. Yeah, I need you to help me and help get me to Jesus. So they walk him up the stairs, they get him on this flat roof, and then they start making a mess because whenever you get someone to Jesus, there's going to be some mess involved. So look what they do here. They start like making a hole so that they can drop this brother through the roof and get him to Jesus. And I don't know for sure if this is the case, but my mind would assume that some of the dirt and mud and tile fell down in the building and he even probably got on Jesus. Jesus is willing to take our mess. Jesus is willing to uh, self-sacrifice, if you will. And so the mud and the grass and the clay tile just humoring kind of like falls in the room. And look what they do. They, they, they get him to Jesus. They were willing to do whatever it took so that their partner could experience life differently. And I, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, as they're lifting the fella up, he starts thinking, you know, I don't know if he did, but starts thinking, man, I hope that this isn't going to be one of them false hope situations. You know, I, I've been there before where I start, you know, approaching what seems like a deliverance point, 
and I hope I'm not going to be disappointed again, sometimes people don't kind of like continue to progress because they've been stonewalled in the past. Let me tell you about the folks that I have the, uh, the privilege to walk alongside with. I've seen people come out of, out of incarceration, brilliant people, skilled people, and they come out of incarceration and they're on a trajectory where we would say, yep, you're on the right route, bro, keep it up. And then what happens is someone brings up their past. And they're not denying, you know, they're not saying that there shouldn't be, you know, um, some accountability for that. But then what happens when they're bringing up them, their past, they start uh, kind of um, treating them or relating to them like they are what they've done. We call it, and, and sometimes the folks that are doing that don't even, we don't even realize we're doing that. We call it an implicit bias. Do you, do you all think you have any? Often we have them and don't recognize them. Often it takes some jive turkey to call us out. Right? And so we start relating to people out of our own stuff. Some of us don't believe that the 600,000 people that will come back to their communities have anything to contribute to our society. Some of us think, man, just they did the crime, throw the keys, and do the time. See, you wouldn't want to be you. And so, you know, these guys come out and they, they, they try to make a change, and, and those of us that have power or asset or can uh, help them to survive, we miss it. Now, I'm not, like, jabbing you for missing it, but it's something to think about. How do we relate to those that are in worse conditions than us? So the fellow's on the mat, and I'm sure he's wondering, like, is this going to be another failed opportunity? Is this going to be another stonewall? Like, like, what's going to happen when I get there? Like, I came in an untraditional way, and I love that Jesus allows traditions to be broke for us to come to him. So they drop him um, through the hole. And I don't know if Jesus just kept preaching the gospel or if he slowed the moment down. I don't know if he, you know, looked at the guy and wept because of his condition or, or if he applauded the brothers for getting him to Jesus. The text doesn't say. But I will say this. In our lives, in our homes, in our marriages, in our businesses, things can become so messy and so dismal that if we're willing to slow things down, Jesus is willing to slow things down and willing to build a relationship with us so that our situation can be changed. See, some of us find ourselves in predicaments where we're paralyzed, and what we do instead of going to Jesus, we get in deeper messes. Maybe not here at Christ Community, but at some churches I go to, one way they deal with their conditions Instead of going to Jesus, they have a secret life. You know, they're looking at things on the phone that they shouldn't. They're making calls and having relationships that they ought not have. They're consumed in their vocation, in their business, like that becomes their God. 
I don't want to deal with the real issue. And remember what I just said, if we're willing to slow things down, he's willing to slow things down and build a relationship so that uh, we can experience transformation. Anyone here need Jesus to slow things down and anyone here need God to transform some things in your life? Like, I, I know not everybody, but somebody here, I know your marriage looks good, but if, if we came behind the, behind the closed door, the truth is, it's paralyzed. I, I know that, you know, you look like you got it going on, you smell good, and you walk with a little swag, if you will. But the truth is, when you look in the mirror, you don't like who you see and you don't like what you become. And you're stuck. You're paralyzed. You have no strength to get out this mess. And uh, I think we have a responsibility to one another. There's someone among us that, that just isn't going to make it if we don't commit to being our brother's or our sister's keeper. And uh, the story goes like this. They, they get them there. And I like this. Here's the power of the brothers that committed to this fella. Verse 5, when Jesus sees his faith, nope, it doesn't say that. When Jesus sees their faith. Now you might ask, how do you see faith? Right? It's demonstrated, it's expressed by their willingness to do what needs to be done in order for them to get this fella to Jesus. Scripture says that Jesus sees the four guys faith, and it impacts the paralytic's life. News alert, brothers and sisters, your faith has the impact to transform someone's life. Jesus sees their faith, and what happens here, Jesus sees their faith, and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. The dude didn't even ask for forgiveness. Now, I'm not making a, you know, I'm not making a conversion sort of point on how, you know, you need to um, uh, kind of the Romans road or anything like that. I, I'm just saying that the text says that Jesus saw the foreman's faith. They, he sees the dude's condition, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Sure, you had some skeptics there. You had some folks that said, this isn't right. I think a couple things were going on here. Jesus was cool. He was, I like how he did this thing. Uh, he he kind of was like uh, making it known, like, yep, I'm the Messiah. He knew that no one can forgive sins but God. Um, Jesus, folks, let, uh, Jesus is man, no doubt. But he's also God. And he has the power, the authority to make this statement and look what the teachers of the law say, hey, 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 hey. No one can forgive sins but God. Verse 6, you're blaspheming. 
And Jesus um, again demonstrates his God ability, right? He's omniscient. He knows what they're thinking. And he says, why are y'all thinking this in your spirit? Right? He said, what would be easier for me to do? Like, if I said you're healed and, and he's healed, like, okay, miracles happen. But I'm telling you, I can deal with the real issue here. Something causes me to think that this man's condition was connected to a sin pattern. That's not everybody's situation. Some of us have just had some unfair, some jacked up situations. Life has happened. God allowed things to hit us, you know, just because challenges and trials often perfect us and make us. Everyone's gonna go through hardships. But some things we're going through because we so chose sin, and Jesus forgives his sins. And, and then after he kind of gets these teachers of the law straight, look what he does. He says, to the, he says to the fella, your sins are forgiven, and now get up, take your mat, and walk. All right, I'm with it. He says, verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up and walk. And the guy, verse 12, gets up, takes his mat, and the thing that was holding him, he now holds the thing that was holding him. The things that are holding us in our life, uh, when God does a work of transformation, we can now have control over those things. You know those thoughts. You know that secret life that you have. You know the addictions that you're struggling with. You can use, you can have control over that thing, and that can be a testimony to somebody. You know the struggles that we go through? Like, that thing doesn't have to control me or dictate my life anymore. I can tell others that I used to struggle with this, but look what God has done. This thing that used to carry me, I now carry it. Maybe that's why the text says that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. No weapon formed against us shall be able to prosper. I can do all things through Christ who give me strength. Hallelujah. This guy carries his mat and testifies that Jesus is the Christ. Three things to think about as we close here. What does it mean to be my brother's keeper? I believe it means I'm willing to do whatever it takes at whatever cost. I, I, I'm willing to break the mold. I, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to struggle with you so that I can get you to Jesus because I love you. And, and brothers, I know we don't say this much, but, but the fact of the matter is, and I'm talking to the men right now, fact of the matter is, Men are yearning to hear, I love you. And I'll do whatever it takes to ride with you, to get you to Jesus. That's what someone does when they're their brother's keeper. 
Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul said that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, and he gives a litany of things that will come your way. So a brother's keeper is willing to do whatever. Number two, a brother's keeper is willing to um, push up against tradition. Man, he, they jacked this dude's house up to get him to Jesus. And number three, we don't see this in the text. I don't believe that this was the first time, I don't believe that this was the first time that they tried to um, do something courageous in respect to this guy's healing. But brothers stick with brothers throughout the duration of life. Sisters stick with sisters throughout the duration of life. It isn't one and done. It isn't like, dude, if you sin after you're carrying your mat, I'm, I'm, I'm peace out, I'm done with you. Now that's not what brothers do. Like we're in it for the long haul. Maybe there's someone here that, that's never experienced that sort of commitment. And maybe I can just share with you as we prepare to close that, that there is a friend, hallelujah, that sticks closer than any brother. And when your brother or your mother or sister forsake you, there's someone named Jesus that went to Calvary's cross and took on all the sins of humanity, past, present, and future, so that we could have access to the Father. It's called the great exchange. He who was righteous went to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. He took on all the sins of the world, and here I am, tore up from the floor, messed up, and I become righteous because of what he did. Maybe why that old church mother would sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. Y'all ain't saying nothing to me. All our sins and griefs to bear. Huh? He did it just for me. I've learned that a lot of people want to be saved, they just don't know how. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead, here's the big stuff, you shall be saved. Can you say, Lord Jesus? By the fact of your proclamation, you now are part of the family of God. So, brothers and sisters, we need you. I need you. You need me. I'm called to be my brother's keeper. You're called to be your brother's, brothers and sister's keeper. And the fact is we need each other to survive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. God, I thank you for the courage of these men that were willing to bring this guy to you regardless of the cost, regardless of the sacrifice. I believe that there's someone here today that feels a deep calling, a yearning to be a keeper of their brother, keeper of their sister. I pray that you would clarify that call. Put them in positions that they can be used by you. 
Strengthen these people. Now, would you bless this church, Christ's community like never before? Use them for your glory. Make ways, open doors, and expand your kingdom through them. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name. Now y'all help me like I would do when I'm home. Clap your hands, everyone. Shout unto God like you've got the victory. Hallelujah. God bless you.